Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. This is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. On most of the programs, I have a guest. We talk about their different apostolates, the books they're writing, the music they're writing, the art they're making, the churches they're building, all the different aspects of enjoying life to the full in the Catholic Church. Today, we have a special program for the Christmas holidays, and I'll be telling the story of how St. Nicholas became Santa Claus, the true story of Santa Claus here on More Christianity. I'd like to share that with you in two parts. First of all, the wonderful story of St. Nicholas himself, his background and the legends about St. Nicholas, uh, and a little bit about how St. Nicholas Day is celebrated around the world. And then in the second half of the program, we'll be talking about how St. Nicholas became, in America, Santa Claus. You're listening to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. Welcome to the show on how St. Nicholas became Santa Claus. Now, the true story of Santa Claus begins with St. Nicholas, who was born during the 3rd century in a little village in what was an area of Greece, which is now southern Turkey. The village was called Patara. He was born to wealthy parents and raised as a devout Christian. The time period of this is right back in the very earliest days of the church in the 4th century, end of the 200s, early 300s. And Nicholas's mother and father died during an epidemic, during a plague, leaving him as an orphan. He grew up and inherited all the family money, but obeying Jesus' words to give to the poor, he used his inheritance and helped the needy, the sick, and the suffering. Right up front there, at the beginning of Nicholas's story, I draw a wonderful Christian lesson, and that is that although even at an early age he went through hardship in losing his parents, becoming an orphan, he also turned that into something good. He, he wasn't going to become bitter. He was going to become better. And he decided to do that by getting involved more deeply in his love for the Lord and his love for the poor. Nicholas dedicated his life to serving God, and eventually he was made the Bishop of Myra, the city in that same area of what is now Turkey. So St. Nicholas was the Bishop of Myra right back in the earliest days of the church. He was known throughout the land for his generosity, to his love for children, and his concern for the seafaring, for sailors and ships. Now, it was under the Roman Emperor Diocletian, who was persecuting the Christians, that Nicholas began to suffer even further, this time for his faith. He was exiled from his see as a bishop, and he was imprisoned. And the prisons at the time, under the Diocletian persecution, were full of priests, bishops, deacons. In fact, there was no room for real criminals, criminals, the murderers and the robbers. Therefore, chaos began to break out in society as the criminals were released and the good people were locked up. Finally, the persecution of Diocletian ended and Nicholas was released. That's about the time when he attended the famous Council of Nicaea in 325. The Nicene Creed that we say at Mass week by week comes from the Council of Nicaea way back in 325. And Nicholas was one of the bishops who stood up against the heretics at the time at the Council of Nicaea. In fact, there's a famous story about Bishop Nicholas, uh, St. Nicholas as we know him, that he stood up against the heretic Arius at the Council of Nicaea and actually slapped him or punched him in the face and told him to stop such wicked words coming out of his mouth. Imagine what it would be like today if uh, the bishops and the archbishops of the church get together and sometimes they do quarrel and sometimes they debate, but what if it actually broke out into fisticuffs and they were slapping and fighting and, and uh, punching one another in the face? Uh, Nicholas, therefore, must have been a pretty feisty person and a fighter, a person who uh, endured great hardship in becoming an orphan as a child and then enduring imprisonment and suffering uh, for his faith and emerging on the other side with a fair bit of backbone, it sounds like, and a fair bit of character and spirit, willing to defend the faith and fight for the faith, even if it meant fighting with his fists. 
We're not recommending that, by the way, but St. Nicholas, uh, who we think of as the kindly old St. Nick, obviously was a person with a fair bit of true grit and a fair bit of backbone. His death happened on December 6th, and that's why we celebrate December 6th as the Feast of St. Nicholas. As soon as he was buried, immediately wonderful things began to happen. The legends grew up about his holiness, about his character, about his strength. On his tomb, reportedly, a kind of miraculous substance began to accumulate and grow, and it was sweet-smelling, and they called it manna. And people would take this miraculous, oily substance away, and it was used for healing people, and it was used as relics. And so they began to venerate his life and his deeds right back then in the earliest days of the church. We're now talking about the mid-fourth century. He died in December 343. St. Nicholas is known for being patron of children. Why is that? Well, one story tells about a poor man with three daughters. Back in those days, a man uh, had to offer a dowry to the family of the groom, and the husband would take the dowry, and the father didn't have any money for a dowry for his daughters. Without a dowry, a woman was unlikely to marry, and so this poor man's daughters, without dowries, were destined to be sold into slavery. Mysteriously, on three different occasions, the story goes, a bag of gold appeared in their home providing the needed dowries. The bags of gold seem to be tossed through an open window and are said to have landed in stockings or shoes left by the fire to dry. And this led to the custom eventually of children hanging stockings or putting out their shoes by the fireplace awaiting gifts from St. Nicholas. So we're beginning to see already the story of Santa Claus coming true in the traditions of St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas It said, provided miraculously for the gold to be thrown through the window and land in the socks that were drying in front of the fire. And thus, children, even today, hang their stockings up on the chimney piece, waiting for old St. Nick. So, St. Nicholas began to have the stories grow up about being a gift giver and being a patron of children. One of the oldest stories about children in St. Nicholas also shows how he was looking after a little boy who was taken as a captive and a slave by the pirates. The little boy's name was Basilio. And his holy mother would pray for him to be released. And St. Nicholas, the story goes, miraculously appeared to the boy and led him to freedom and returned him home. On another occasion, the story, which is one of my favorites, it's about the three pickled boys. And what happened was a wicked innkeeper robbed and murdered three boys who were traveling. And he hid their remains in a large tub of pickles. And it happened that Bishop Nicholas, traveling along the same route, stopped at the inn, and he knew in his heart this terrible deed that had happened. And the story says that he opened up the pickle barrel and pulled them out, and they were resurrected from the dead because of the great powers of St. Nicholas. The beautiful thing about these stories, although they're legendary and they've grown up over the years, they're rooted in in truth. They're rooted in truthful stories about St. Nicholas, who was a lover of the poor, one who looked after children and cared for them, one who cared for seafarers and sailors and the homeless. And St. Nicholas, therefore, showing us the great virtues of Christian charity, Christian compassion and love for the poor, and especially love for children. Over the years, therefore, Nicholas has been venerated as the patron of bankers, mariners, pawnbrokers, scholars, orphans, children, travelers, innkeepers, marriageable maidens, students, and the list goes on and on. He was extremely popular all through the Middle Ages, and dozens of churches have been named after him. Various countries claim him as their patron. So all across medieval Europe, St. Nicholas became one of the most famous and popular saints, especially in the lowlands, in the Netherlands, in Belgium, also in England. On St. Nicholas Day, December 6th, the children would put out their shoes, put out their stockings by the fireplace, waiting for gifts to be given, 
there would be a procession through town with someone dressed up in a red cope and mitre and with a big long beard as the Bishop of Myra riding on a white horse coming through the town. In various countries, different traditions also developed. One of the most charming was the tradition of the boy bishop. So in schools and monasteries and in colleges across uh, Europe, especially in England, this was very popular, they would elect a boy to be bishop for the day, and they would have a procession where he would be dressed in a small mitre and cope and carry a staff, and he would process into church. He would actually preach a homily that day, and it was a kind of dressing up and uh, occasion for merrymaking. The boy bishop would sometimes be paraded through town, and he would distribute gifts to all the children of candy and fruit. In Holland especially, the boy bishop would be accompanied by Black Peter, and this was a mischief maker, a boy who would be dressed in black, or a, a man who would be dressed in black and go through and play pranks and get into up to hijinks. So it was a day of celebration, a day of fun for children, and to bring out the childlike element in the Christian community. And so St. Nicholas Day uh, began to be celebrated, and even around the world today, in England and in other countries, you'll find that in some schools and churches, they still celebrate the tradition of the boy bishop. And all of this focus on children and on the church is one of our great Catholic customs and traditions, and it's the thing which led directly into the celebration of childhood, the celebration of gift-giving, which we associate with Christmas in modern-day America today. In the second half of the program, I'm going to go into this further and explain how St. Nicholas, the great popular saint in medieval Europe, eventually became Santa Claus in the United States. How did it happen that a bishop from 4th century Turkey ends up as the Coca-Cola swilling, fat, red-suited, jolly old elf that we have in America today named Santa Claus? I'll be talking about that in the second half of More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. I'm glad you're enjoying listening to More Christianity. I invite you to visit my website, dwightlongenecker.com. Some of my archived articles are there, but you'll also be able to link over to my blog, which is called Standing on My Head. You can browse my books. You can purchase some online. You can be in touch. Send me an email. Tell me what you like about More Christianity. Ask some questions about the faith. Invite me to your parish or to your conference for a speaking engagement. That's dwightlongenecker.com. And now back to More Christianity. Welcome back to More Christianity. This is a special program for the holiday season in which we're asking the question, how on earth did a 4th century Christian bishop of Myra in Turkey end up being Santa Claus, the jolly, roly-poly, Coca-Cola-swilling elf of American commercial Christmas? Well, this is how it happened. The first Europeans arrived in the New World, and they brought St. Nicholas. Vikings dedicated their cathedral to him in Greenland, and on his first voyage to America, Columbus named a Haitian port for St. Nicholas on December 6, 1492. In Florida, Spaniards named an early settlement St. Nicholas Ferry, now known as Jacksonville. Why do you think that they named these ports after St. Nicholas? It's because St. Nicholas in Europe was the patron of seafarers, mariners, and navigators, and so it was natural for them to name these ports after their patron saint. Many of the ports and the uh, coastal cities in Europe had already been named after St. Nicholas or claimed him as their patron, and so the European explorers did the same when they landed in the New World. However, St. Nicholas had a difficult time during the 16th century because the Protestant Reformation took a dim view of saints. They were not very happy about all these celebrations with all the different saints and praying to saints and statues and so forth. And so St. Nicholas, like a lot of the other saints, began to be neglected. 
Both reformers and counter-reformers tried to stamp out the St. Nicholas-related customs because you might remember in the first half of the program I explained how the customs for St. Nicholas Day perhaps were becoming a bit more secular than Christian. They were focusing on gift-giving and processions and fun and hijinks, and maybe the sacred part was being overtaken by the secular. And so the reformers and the counter-reformers in the Catholic Church began to stamp on those kind of secular festivities. Maybe they were getting a little bit worldly and out of hand, and they wanted the Christian emphasis of St. Nicholas and, and the faith to be emphasized. So they began to turn to a more Christian observance. Even so, the common people loved St. Nicholas, and he survived on the European continent. People continued to celebrate St. Nicholas Day by placing nuts, apples, and sweets and shoes left beside beds on windowsills or in front of the fireplace. So the little customs continued at the popular level, even though some of the church officials were, well, I guess they were being religious Ebenezer Scrooges. They were trying to stamp on some of the more jolly festivities associated with Christmas. Now, in the New World, the first colonists, primarily Puritans and other Christian reformers, they didn't bring St. Nicholas traditions to the New World. But what about the Dutch? Everybody thinks that the Dutch brought St. Nicholas to New Amsterdam. And yet scholars find very little evidence of such tradition in Dutch New Netherland, as New York was then called. Colonial Germans in Pennsylvania, however, they kept the Feast of St. Nicholas. And several later accounts of St. Nicholas visiting the New York Dutch on New Year's Eve But it was the English who brought it to them, not the Dutch themselves. And in 1773, the New York non-Dutch patriots formed something called the Sons of St. Nicholas, which was a non-British symbol to counter the English St. George societies. And so it gets pretty complicated in the New World in the 1700s. The different Old World factions, the English versus the Dutch and Dutch versus the English, are all cropping up there and raising their heads in the United States. And St. Nicholas is tied up with the whole complicated business. After the American Revolution, New Yorkers remembered with pride their colony's nearly forgotten Dutch roots. Someone named John Pintard was an influential patriot, and he promoted St. Nicholas as the patron saint of New York City. And then by January 1809, St. Nicholas starts to come into the American popular imagination. Washington Irving, the writer, joined the Society of St. Nicholas, and on St. Nicholas Day, he published a satirical fiction work called Knickerbocker's History of New York, and in it were various references to a jolly St. Nicholas character. This was not the saintly Bishop of Myra, but it was a kind of elf, respectable Dutch burger with a clay pipe and a sense of mischief, and these delightful flights of imagination are the source of the New Amsterdam New York St. Nicholas legends. The New York Historical Society held its first St. Nicholas anniversary dinner on December 6, 1810. That's St. Nicholas Day, 1810. And John Pintard commissioned the artist Alexander Anderson to create the first American image of St. Nicholas for the occasion. And in this image, Nicholas is shown as a gift-giving saint with children's treats in stockings hanging by the fireplace. And the accompanying poem ends, St. Nicholas... My dear good friend, to serve you ever was my end. If you will now me something give, I'll serve you ever while I live. So we can see now the tradition of St. Nicholas giving gifts to children, putting them in stockings by the hearth or into shoes by the hearth, is something which is now resurrected by December 1810 in New York. All during the 19th century, America was in a time of cultural transition. New York writers and others wanted to domesticate the Christmas holiday after Puritans and other Calvinists had eliminated Christmas as a holy season. 
Popular celebrations therefore became riotous, featuring drunken men in public disorder, and the Christmas of old was not the image that we imagine of families gathered cozily around the fire and the Christmas tree exchanging pretty gifts and singing carols while tapping children benevolently on the head. Rather, it was characterized by raucous drunken mobs roaming in the city streets, damaging property, threatening and frightening the upper classes. They were demanding an awful lot from their employers during the holiday season, and everybody got a little bit carried away. Therefore, through the first half of the 19th century, good Presbyterians, Baptists, Quakers, and other Protestants continued to regard December 25th as a day without any significance at all. It was a day for normal business. They weren't into celebrating Christmas either with drunken revelries in the streets or even by celebrating St. Nicholas or even the birth of the Lord on that day. And all of this began to change as a new understanding of family life and the place of children was emerging. Childhood was coming to be seen as a stage of life in which children needed to be looked after and educated, people began to develop a sentimental idea about children, and so the season gradually began to be tamed, and it began to be focusing again on children and on gift-giving and on the home and on all of the cozy things we associate with Christmas even today. Things moved on. In 1821, there were some new elements with the publication of a book in America called The Children's Friend. And this Santa Claus or Sancti Claus the name was probably derived from the Dutch version, which was Santa Claus, which was like Saint Nicholas or Saint Niklaus. Santa Claus arrived from the north in a sleigh in this children's book of 1821 with flying reindeer for the first time. The anonymous poem and illustrations provided a major shift away from a saintly bishop into the elf who rides in a sleigh or lands on your rooftop and comes down your chimney. Santa Claus fits a little teaching through these stories, rewarding good behavior and punishing bad. He's leaving a long black rod for the children who've been naughty and giving gifts to all the children who were good. The gifts were nice, safe toys, a pretty doll or a peg top or a ball. There was nothing like crackers or cannons or guns or rockets to blow things up. Instead, the toys were nice and sweet for children who were nice and sweet. The sleigh even sported a bookshelf, in order for the children to have pretty books and books that would help to improve their learning and make them better children. So it was all very kind and nice and sweet. And Santa Claus, rather than being a Catholic saint or even a Christian figure, was instead a kind of do-gooder who came down your chimney and rewarded you for being a good person. Well, that was very popular. And in 1823, based on the popularity of that children's book, a poem was written which was destined to become an absolute classic in the American celebration of Christmas. A Visit from St. Nicholas was written, and it is now better known as The Night Before Christmas. We all know the words of that famous poem. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his sack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke had encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf. Clearly the vision of Santa Claus as a fat little elf was influenced by Washington Irving's earlier book, The Knickerbocker History of New York. Suddenly... St. Nicholas had become a round, pipe-smoking, elf-like character with a 
belly that was like a bowl full of jelly. The poem has been attributed to Clement Clark Moore, a professor of biblical languages at New York's Episcopal General Theological Seminary. But Moore was a friend and neighbor of William Gilly, who had first published Sancti Clause, another poem in 1821. That poem reads, Old Santa Claus, with much delight, his reindeer drives the frosty night, or chimney tops and tracks of snow to bring his yearly gifts to you. So we're not quite sure who actually wrote the famous poem, but it certainly established a foundation for the American idea of St. Nicholas. Suddenly, St. Nicholas was a jolly, pipe-smoking elf with a long white beard, And that vision of Santa Claus succeeded in becoming the predominant image. No longer was it a Christian bishop riding on a white horse with his mitre and his cope. Instead, it was a kind of supernatural figure, an elf who was coming to give gifts to all of the children. So, what happened next? Other artists and writers jumped on the bandwagon, or jumped on the sleigh, if you like, and they continued to change the elf-like St. Nicholas into the popular Sancti Claus and finally Santa Claus. In 1863, during the Civil War, the political cartoonist Thomas Nast began a series of annual black-and-white drawings in the magazine Harper's Weekly. And there, he created a visual image of the elf from Washington Irving's work. These drawings established a fat Santa with a flowing beard, fur garments, and the clay pipe. And Nast Santa supported the Union and President Lincoln and believed this contributed to the Union troops' success in demoralizing Confederate soldiers. Things moved on. The German immigrants who loved Christmas, Clement Clark Moore's poem, Washington Irving's writings, Charles Dickens reviving the the traditions of Christmas in England— and church musicians embracing carol singing all began to bring Christmas observances into the popular lives of everyone. And the growth of Sunday schools and cities exposed hundreds of thousands of children to Christianity. And finally, Santa Claus came in as a kind of Christian figure again, coming in as part of the Christmas celebrations which were growing up and the Christian celebrations of Christmas. They'd forgotten in Protestant America anything about St. Nicholas, the venerable patron of sailors and children and the Bishop of Myra, and instead they had the new secular Santa Claus. By then, Santa was portrayed by dozens of artists in a wide variety of ways. By the end of the 1920s, a standard American Santa, life-sized in fur, red-trimmed suit, had come out from artists like N.C. Wyeth, Norman Rockwell, J.C. Leyendecker, and various other illustrators had their artwork on the cover of Saturday Evening Post, Life Magazine, And this image was solidified by an artist called Hatton Sunbloom in the early 1930s. He began 35 years of Coca-Cola Christmas ads that further popularized Santa Claus, the fat, jolly, red-suited elf as part of American culture. And so the Coca-Cola ads can be traced from the early 1930s to see Santa Claus swilling Coca-Cola and bringing gifts to everyone, and thus associating the all-American drink with the all-American celebration of Christmas. Suddenly, Santa Claus appeared everywhere, on magazines and billboards and shop counters, encouraging Americans to have the the good life, the jolly life, of which Coca-Cola was all very integral part. By the 1950s, Santa was turning up as a symbol of benevolence and goodness and kindness and sweetness and being good to children. And this commercial sentimental success of the North American Santa Claus was finally being exported around the world. As Coke went around the world, so did the American version of Santa Claus. 
Well, that's how it happened that a 4th century bishop of Myra, St. Nicholas, who showed his devotion to God with great kindness and generosity to those in need, ended up being America's jolly commercial Santa Claus. Well, it's still a good thing to have Santa Claus giving gifts and for us to give gifts to one another. But the whole story reminds us that the tradition is rooted in our Christian faith, rooted in our Catholic faith. The whole thing is rooted, furthermore, in the call for Catholic charity, not just to give ourselves more good gifts, not just to give ourselves more things that we don't really need, not to give ourselves a great, fat, prosperous life, but to remember St. Nicholas's first acts of charity. So what do we make of St. Nicholas and Santa Claus? Well, in many ways, the two of them stand as a symbol for the clash between real Christianity and popular secular culture in America. The Coca-Cola Santa Claus, if you like, well, I don't want to be a spoil sport or a Scrooge, but he really does represent a kind of American culture which is focused on consumerism, focused on giving ourselves more things that maybe we don't need, focusing on Christmas as a commercial, secularized, consumption and consumer-laden holiday in which we feel we must celebrate more and more of our material success, giving ourselves more and more gifts. That, for me, is what the Coca-Cola Santa Claus really stands for. Beneath that and behind it, of course, is the wonderful figure of St. Nicholas, whose feast day we celebrate on December 6th. Very simply, a Christian saint, someone who from the earliest days of his life gave everything to the Lord, was imprisoned for his faith, suffered for his faith, exiled for his faith, stood up for his faith with great backbone and courage when it was threatened by those who would water it down and turn it into nothing more than a religion of good works. A saint who looked after the poor, a saint who loved orphans and the homeless, a saint who redeemed the poor from slavery, redeemed the poor from captivity, a saint who went out of his way to bless pilgrims and sailors and the homeless and those who were lost at sea and those who were lost in a port away from home, a saint who had the compassion of the Lord in his heart, a saint who shows us that at the heart of Christmas is a God who gives, and the reason that we give gifts is because he first gave us the great gift of his son. St. Nicholas was a great wonder worker. All across medieval Europe, he was venerated as one who was involved in the lives of ordinary people, spreading Christ's charity and goodness. So at the Christmas season, let's look past Santa Claus and Celebrate him in a friendly and happy way, but also remember that behind all that is the deepest and most beautiful gift, the gift of God giving us his Son. Amen.